Hello and welcome to the New Lions podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today we'll be talking about Arabic literature and translation. The Arab world has a rich literary heritage and a vibrant contemporary literary scene, which has attracted the interest of many English-speaking readers. In 2017, Arabic was the seventh most translated language for American markets, above Norwegian and just below Japanese. But translating Arabic writing for an English-speaking audience, as with any other languages, is not as straightforward as it may seem. Words with nominally the same meaning may carry very different connotations, while differences in how the two languages construct sentences can completely change the intended rhythm of an author's writing. Preserving the heart of an Arabic text while rendering it legible to English readers is a serious and challenging undertaking. To explore these issues, I'm joined today by Reem Basuni, Marshall Ingsqueli, and Lydia Wilson. Reem Basuni is a professor at the American University in Cairo in the Department of Applied Linguistics. She's the series editor for Routledge's Studies in Language and Identity, and her academic books include Language and Identity in Modern Egypt and Arabic and the Media. Reem is also an award-winning novelist, receiving the prestigious Naguib Mahfouz Award for the Best Egyptian Novel of 2019 for her novel, Sons of the People, the Mamluk Trilogy. She is the first female novelist to ever receive that award. Marshall Ingsqueli is a critic, editor, and an expert in translating the Arabic language. She is the founding editor of Arab Lit, a website focused on Arabic literature in translation. And she's also the co-host of Bulak, a podcast exploring the Arab world through books. Lydia Wilson is the culture editor here at New Lines magazine. She translated a 10th century text by the Muslim philosopher Al-Farabi for her PhD, which she says put her off translation for life. As a result, she has huge respect for all translators. Reem, Marsha, Lydia, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be with you all. Yes, thank you for having us. Reem, your books are quite clearly set in their own cultural and national context, uh, spanning a huge range of historical periods. Most recently, with Sons of the People, the Mamluk trilogy, you've gone all the way back to medieval Cairo. Um, but you've also covered issues of class and gender and society in modern history. I wonder how you felt with the result. You're seeing such intensely personal context emerge now in different languages. I think, I mean, I'm very happy with the result. I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, translation could be a very challenging uh, task to take, especially with all the cultural associations of different words. I mean, even thinking about my novel, uh, Sons of the People, Awladinness in Arabic, that's already, uh, the term itself is loaded. And the associations of the, of the word or the term Sons of the People, you don't actually have in English which is basically uh, aristocrats or people who come from good families. We use this term at the moment to mean that. And the, the term was used in the past to mean the uh, children of the Mamluk. Mm. So as you could see, just a title of a novel could uh, have different associations in the Arabic and the English. And it's almost impossible to be able to translate uh, these different associations. It gets even more challenging with my novel, Sabir al-Gharq, in Arabic, which is translated uh, in English and came out with the, from Duan, which is Fountain of the Drowning. The word Sabin in Arabic has two meanings. It means uh, a way or a path and also a place where you um, drink water. And of course, the two meanings you cannot capture in an English translation, so you need to choose one of them. And still, it does not have the religious connotations that the word Sabil has. Mm. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there are so many challenges 
for a translator that I totally understand why Lydia decided <laughs> that this uh, task is, is a very challenging one to take. So, yeah, I mean, and that's also why it's very much worthwhile because you're not just, um, you know, trying to um, tell people a story when you're translating uh, a work into a different language. You're also trying to capture uh, culture and the, the people and the way of living and the tradition. So that's also um, is a very enriching experience for the translator and for the reader. I mean, even just with those two titles that you've given us, you can see already that even from the title, there are parts of the experience that are going to be missing in a foreign language. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. And so I think, you, you know, um, something that Khaled uh, Raja, and this is Marsha, sorry, I'm leaping in. Khaled um, Raja touches on in a recent review of Karim uh, James Abouzaid's translation of Najwan Darwish's poetry. And poetry, I think, is, is much like titles. In the prose itself, uh, I think you can expand, right? So you might gloss over to to you know, to include these meanings uh, in a sentence, in a longer prose sentence, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't say, um, you know, fountain slash path slash, you know, you know, you would, you would enrich the sentence, but in a title, it, it is difficult to convey multiple meanings, much as it is in poetry. And I think um, Khaled Raja in going through and detailing uh, Karim James Abouzaid's translation choices as he translates the Palestinian poet Najwan Darwish shows how, yes, sometimes when there are religious connotations, Karim, um, adds in additional words. He he moves things around in, in the poetry, attempting to capture not just this sort of word-for-word -word translation, which doesn't work, I don't think, with any language, but um, but trying to give you the, the move over the spirit of it, give you the same feeling, give you the same um, thoughts, resonances, sounds as you would have. Um, it, to whatever extent that's possible. I just wanted to add something to what Marsha is saying, because the, also there is a big question of whether you should include footnotes in translations, mm. or is that something that you only do in scientific books? Because once you include footnotes, you're interrupting the flow of a literary text. So that's another big thing, you know, a big uh, topic to, to think about when, you, when we are uh, translating that I had to face in my own translations. And how did you think about it, Reem? Uh, well, I, my, my translator, Roger Allen, he, uh, you know, for Sons of the People, he did not think that uh, footnotes are a good idea for a literary text because they basically would interrupt the flow of the fiction. And so uh, we decided not to have uh, footnotes. And, and again, that's, I mean, these are all uh, issues that are extremely uh, essential in, in translating. So, but when then we decided to have, at the very end of the uh, of the book, we decided to have uh, a kind of timeline of events to uh, contextualize the historical, uh, you know, fiction or to contextualize the history of the book, because for a foreign reader, they will not really understand some of the historical uh, context without a timeline. So that was another issue that was um, important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite complicated. Before we started the podcast, Reem and I were talking about some historical events in the 20th century in Egypt. And it's quite difficult because some of those events, as historical events have, they have particular resonances with audiences. And when you take the the audience into a different language, then the audience doesn't feel perhaps that that historical connection with what's being uh, with what happened. So there's a tendency perhaps to have to explain it in some way so that people get the emotional component behind the historical uh, event. 
Sure, sure. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Lydia? And Reem, um, you've also worked on language and identity in your research, though within an Egyptian context rather than between Egypt and a different language. Uh, and so you are used to thinking about how choices in language can signal very important things culturally. Do you think this academic work makes a difference as to how you think about translation? Yes, for sure. I mean, it, it does influence very much my writing in, in different ways. Actually, uh, since you're talking about uh, language and identity, I have a novel that hasn't been translated, which is uh, Love Arab Style, Al-Hubba Tariq Al-Arabiya. And the novel deals with identity of Egyptians and the identity of Arabs. And uh, Faisal and I were talking about, you know, different identities of Arabs before we started broadcasting. And it's, it's fascinating how Arabs perceive each other, how Arabs look at each other, uh, what are the associations that one has with one's identity, especially with having one language, but the language has different dialects and different, uh, you know, accents. And this also means that we have different ways of speaking. Sometimes there are words we might not understand, uh, but yet still we think we speak one language and we're unified by one language in the Arab world. So that's already very challenging. Uh, let alone when you think about the challenge of um, translating, and that's that's another uh, challenge that I'm very much aware of as a linguist, especially as a sociolinguist. Do you think that very cultural specificity of that novel is is precisely why it's the only one that hasn't been translated? Uh, I think that yes, I think for sure that not only the cultural specificity, but it's also a very it deals with very sensitive topics like um, sectarian differences in the Arab world, uh, wars. It's I think it will be very difficult to translate it. I, I mean I think it's possible to translate it, but um, it's a very I think uh, it could it could lead to a lot of controversy. But I think it's important. It's a very important novel in the sense that. Uh, it was a bestseller in Egypt, and uh, and uh, also it was uh, published by the Egyptian government uh, at the very beginning when it came out in 2009. Uh, I think, it, as I said, it will be maybe difficult to translate because of the issues that it deals with. It deals with the relationship of love between an Egyptian girl and the Lebanese Shia, uh, an Egyptian Sunni girl and the Lebanese Shia men, and they get married, but then there are lots of other problems in the region that they have to tackle and deal with. Uh, and already just the theme itself has caused a lot of uproar, even from some of my readers uh, saying, you know, is that allowed? Can you do this? And you'll be surprised that Egyptians lack a lot of knowledge about these um, sectarian differences in reality. And that was the main part of the novel, the identity of Egyptians, which does not necessarily understand all the different um, variations uh, in the Arab world. Well, that does sound pretty challenging for a foreign audience, <laughs> if it was challenging sure, sure. for a local Yes, audience. I think so. I think yes. so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, Marsha, you're very much at the intersections of many cultures in your in your work championing Arabic books in translation. What do you think the most common pitfalls are in translating cultures? Wow. OK, so uh, <laughs> I guess um, I think uh, I try to keep a sort of, sort of a lodestone, something that Huda Fakhreddin said in a recent interview, which was that a translator needs to have a stake in both cultures. So I think just generally the biggest pitfall is, is that people um, look to being uh, bilingual without looking to being bicultural or, or looking to really sort of engage the novel and its context 
or, or the poetry in its context fully. Or, or you know, also, <laughs> I mean, there are really sort of all, all manner of pitfalls. Um, I th think the relationship between Arabic literature and English literature in, when it comes to Arabic into English translation has has developed tremendously over the last 50 years. If you read some translations from um, 30, 20, 30 years ago, you'd be you'd be really stunned at how how bad some of them can be. And you know, some of these projects that are that that are, are pretty recent that we look back at and wonder how how did this happen? You know, some of these bridge translation projects. Um, where there's a you know a sort of sort of quote native informant who makes a rough copy of something and then they hand it off to the writer whose name is on the front cover as the translator who doesn't necessarily know any Arabic at all. So I think um, actually the field has has changed so drastically in the last um, 40, 50 years that uh, you know I. I think um, it's almost unrecognizable. Mm, you've given me a little clue as to why I did find my PhD so hard. Maybe I didn't have <laughs> that stake in Al-Farabi's philosophical culture. <laughs> uh, well, I think you you looked for a very difficult way in. I, I mean, for me, <laughs> my first several translations were uh, middle grade and young adult novels. And since I happen to be very childish, um, which I'm actually Sunya Nimr, the Palestinian author who I'm very close to, and I've, I've, I'm working on the third of her books that I've translated. She is, you know, she's this immensely formidable academic and author and a little bit scary when you meet her for the first time. But she's also very much like, well, I write YA novels because I'm still 16 in my heart. So... <laughs> Oh, I love YA literature myself. So that's a great mm. thing you're doing. Um, and it's such a large part of the market, isn't it? It's important for everybody, not just children. Yeah, I think, you know, when you see YA literature, or at least when I say, you know, <laughs> women in their 30s are apparently the largest market for YA literature. But I think, you know, it, it communicates something about this book is going to be enjoyable for you. Um, and, and, and I think that that sense of delight is something that I really enjoy. Well, I'm curious about that. How do you feel as um, it differs in Arabic, the Arabic um, in translation? I mean, do you read much YA in English? I do read YA. In <laughs> I read YA uh, as widely as I can um, because, like, uh, I really have sort of taken this as my, uh, as Huda Fakhridin says, I need to have a stake. In, in the literature in both languages in multiple cultures. So yes, I, I'm very engaged in, in YA in Arabic, um, it, which is a more um, it, it's in you could say it's a nation field, but it's it's not really. So kids used to read, you know, um Nabil Farouk and um Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq and books that weren't called YA, but, you know, weren't marketed as YA, but really were, you know, fun, thrillers, horror, etc., genre novels. Now, it, more books are self-consciously marketed as, as YA. Um, and yeah, there's, there are big differences between the two, you know, many YA authors in Arabic complain of not being as free as their peers in some other 
languages in terms of being able to write about, you know, sex and lust and relationships yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Lydia, I want to go back to your translation of Farabi, but because you, we said it in the introduction, um, but this translation you did, the, the, the enumeration of the sciences, this philosophical work from the 10th century, it must have been, I mean, a major undertaking. And so when I said at the very beginning that you didn't like translation or you subsequently stopped liking translation, um, I wondered what you, like, what you meant by it. Um, I need to point out at this point that the enumeration of the sciences isn't very long, <laughs> so it's not as, as it's not like translating the works of Aristotle or anything. Um, the actual text I did is, is was was fairly short, um, but yeah, translation is always a struggle, obviously, and the results are always inevitably a compromise. And I think we've covered a little bit about that already. And Reen, your examples about your titles were very illuminating. Um, but when you, yeah, I'll. I'll there are there are very many things packed up in that one choice that you have to make is between the literal and the lucid and of course as you said Marsha you can't do word for word translation nobody can the the, the results aren't, aren't, aren't intelligible in another language uh, but when you're doing something like philosophy you really have to aim for something fairly straightforwardly straightforward translation shall I say you know it has to be fairly literal uh, because you're trying to get a, a, across the point of a philosophical argument um, but yes you do need it to be comprehensible in the, lang in, in the target language um, and then the second thing of course is that you have to well you don't have to but a, a major challenge is to get across the the authorial voice and that's a totally different um, challenge on top of the meaning um, you have to you have to kind of choose between preserving that authorial style, but making it feel natural in the target language. And that's not always very easy. And then on top of all of that, of course, there's the word associations. Reem, you talked about Sabil um, and the cultural references like the religious um, um, connotations to Sabil that we might not have. In, well, we don't have in English um, on top of the literary sense and style. So all of this, I, I guess I just felt it more as a huge pressure and an inevitable failure. I think that's how I feel about, about translation, that I am inevitably going to fail. But thank you all <laughs> out there, or every translator in the world I want to thank at this point, because I read so much in translation, not just from Arabic, from a lot of different languages that I would not have any access to. So I'm glad some people fight the good fight. <laughs> I want to add something to what Lydia is saying, because I think uh, she echoes very much what Roger Allen said, that a translation is never finished. Mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. a very good quotation. It's it's really not never finished. I think that's perhaps what was the challenge for you as well, because the text is never ready, really. Yes, and there's always a different choice you could have made, and on a different day exactly. you might have. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Did you feel, Reem, that... Uh, that your voice was transferred to the English versions of your book? I was really lucky with all my translators. I mean, I, I did have three novels translated before Sons of the People. And uh, Sons of the People was translated by, uh, you know, the renowned translator, Roger Allen. So, and um, I also had Melanie Medigo. She translated uh, my novel, Mortal Designs, which was about social class uh, in Egypt, political, social changes that were happening in Egypt. Uh, in the year 2010, just or just before the 2011 revolution, so I mean, they, I think they all captured, you know, the, the different, um, you know, the different um, nuances or nuances of the meanings. 
that I was trying to uh, convey. They did it very well, I have to say. And uh, they always consulted with me if they had any uh, problems or they wanted to make sure about something. They were extremely diligent and meticulous in their translations. So I, I'm, I was very lucky in that sense. I did uh, hear about other colleagues whose translations were very different, sometimes better than the original text and sometimes worse. <laughs> so translations sometimes, I mean, I, you do hear stories about translations being better even than the original text. And you do hear the opposite. So. Actually, I'd love to follow up on what you said about mortal designs, which, by the way, I really love. And um, you touched on on class in, in a huge amount of different ways and different interactions between characters, different signals from the craven nature of the protagonist, Asma, you know, when she. Yeah. Oh, you remember her name. I'm so glad. <laughs> oh, no, I, I really, I really, really loved it. Um, um, and yeah, that that terrible relationship with Karima, the the captain's wife, you know, as was <laughs> so craven and Karima's so rude, and but then you also kind of went into explanations as well, not in the not in the signals, but you actually explained the the entitlement of people like Hazim, um, and of course you yourself were writing to an audience already very familiar with the context, but I. I felt it came through loud and clear to, to me, a foreigner. Do you ever think about your foreign audiences and what they draw from your writing? Um, yes, and I'm always surprised. Uh, it's very interesting to see the, the kind of reception you get from different, because people have different uh, ideas and different concepts. So, uh, you know, with the, with the mortal designs, I'm so glad uh, that you, you got all the different social classes and how they treat each other and, you know, the mistrust that is in Egypt between different social classes. Uh, I remember the pistachio seller, the first novel that I got translated and it won an award in the best translation uh, in the U.S., the, the possession seller, when, I, when it came out in Egypt, the, it's, it's all from the perspective of a teenage girl who, who was in love with her cousin, which is something very common in, in Egyptian um, countryside. And uh, she's in love with this cousin who's a bit much more, um, you know, he has a much more uh, experience, a global experience. He lives in the UK, he travels to the US, and she never ever leaves her provincial, uh, you know, town. Uh, in Egypt, and and it comes all from this perspective. And in Egypt, lots of uh, Egyptian girls wrote to me, and they said they were a little bit, um, you know, frustrated with Wafa, the the heroine, because she was so much in love and so sincere in her love for this man for about fifteen years, and they felt that this was too much. While the American uh, audience was actually, or the American readers were actually the opposite. They were all like, we really admire her because she's so true to herself. So that was a very interesting kind of different reception of the novel in a way. Uh, and, and just really very important as a bridge between cultures, which of course, Marsha, that's a lot of your work. You're a champion of it all, most clearly seen in your very influential blog, Arab Lit. Um, as well as the podcast um, we've already mentioned. And both of these are sources for information for many people. And that was recognized by your 2017 Literary Translation Initiative Prize from the London Book Fair. Uh, but communicating all of these cultural elements that Reem has spoken of, um, it's, it's not any more straightforward than any other aspect of translation that, that I was struggling with with Al-Farabi. In fact, it might actually be the hardest bit, right? Um, but that, also makes a translator a hugely powerful position 
uh, you're acting as that bridge between cultures, not just between texts, between cultures. And what has been changed is utterly invisible to the reader, so they have to trust the translator. And so that gives the translator a lot of control over how a culture is perceived, particularly if it's one that readers are unfamiliar with. And that's a huge responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, although I would say that for as much as translators are um, uh, ha have, have this role, publishers do as well. So in a number of books that have been changed in translation in ways that are invisible to the to the monolingual reader it was the publisher's intervention as well so so yes the the translator is in a in a in in this sort of pivot is in this sort of both this un low paying um terrible working conditions low prestige position but also a position in which they do wield a lot of power it, it it's a it's a sort of a contradictory position i think and actually, Marsha, you wrote an essay for us at New Lines about how that power is often wielded by translators of Arabic texts in ways that just confirm preconceived notions Westerners so often have about Arabic culture. And this can happen particularly around sex and particularly around women, can't it? Right, right. And, and, but I think that, that this goes for a whole, um, there's a whole sort of spectrum that goes into a book, right? There's, there's not just the, the sort of the lone translator, a book is always a group project. So there's the, the cover, cover design process. And the cover design can, I think, be one of the, one of the places for the greatest um, pitfalls. Oh. Uh, it, um, I, Adam Taleb has this beautiful presentation that that he does um, called Translating for Bigots. And, and I think you can see sort of um, much of the cover design was trying to, like cover design does in general, trying to mimic popular books. So starting to give the visual language that Associate, people associate with bestsellers, you know, multi-million selling uh, copies. So for a while with Arabic literature, particularly um, women's literature, this was this, um, you know, um, saving Muslim women genre, this not without my daughter genre, which was quite popular, you know, sort of inside the harem, behind the veil, etc. which these books did sell in the millions of copies. Um, so... A, a, a story written in Arabic translated into English may have nothing to do with, with those, those books. But the publisher is often trying to use the sort of visual tropes of those popular books, those best-selling books, which is, you know, a woman whose face is entirely covered except for her, you know, coal-rimmed eyes. Um, and um, in, in order to sell the books, also to use all this sort of, um, there's this wonderful French study. I don't know that any similar study has been done in English about jacket literature of Arabic literature and French translation and how often the word taboo and um, first, etc., are are used. So I think there's not just the, the issue of the text being translated, but the book is a whole object, um, the, the text on the back, the cover, um, the new uh, the title if if the title is changed 
Yeah, it's what Genet, the French literary theorist, called paratext. Everything mm. but the text, how much it informs your reading. Reem, how did you feel about your cover designs in, in translation? Was was there anything you found? Different? I think I, I want to strongly agree with what Marsha is saying about, you know, presentation of um, Arabic literature in translation in general. And I also agree with Marsha. It's, 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 a trans it's not just a translator, but it's also the publisher. Uh, it's the choice of books that are being translated. Sometimes mm. the choice is not, it's not very clear why specific books are being translated. Um, some books are being translated because they won prizes, that, that makes sense, or because they are bestsellers uh, in their country. And these are very few, by the way. But most of the books that have been translated are already books that deal with these issues. You know, so the content of the book is already issues that are in my opinion, not necessarily the main issues um, that are, uh, you know, causing problems in, in the Arab world in general. So, for example, in my novel, Mortal Designs, I didn't deal with, um, you know, sexual uh, uh, prohibitions or taboos or what, what, you know, covered women. I dealt much more with how uh, women from different social classes could really uh, harass each other and could cause a lot of problems for each other. And that's a, a problem that I see around me much more than the oppression of women by men, which is something that we have so much of in uh, literature and translation, to be honest. So mm -hmm. I, I do agree that I don't think that, uh, and this is a big statement to make, but I still do not think that uh, what we have of all the Arabic literature and translation presents the real problems in the Arab world at large. We still need a lot more translations, a lot more publishers who are bold enough to translate novels that somehow reflect everyday lives of people in the Arab world at different uh, historical periods and you know, try to deal with them as humans, not the other, and to try to deal with them as people who are not devoid of choices, but people who do make choices every day of their lives. Um, so I think for me, this, this to follow up with what Marshall is saying, this is a big issue that I, I saw around me all the time. It is a constant problem, isn't it? I mean, Marsha, that essay that you wrote for us, it covered so much ground. Um, and you also, uh, in some sense, gave the feeling of the writer being translated, and Reem, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a certain sense that writers can be victims of translation. And you mentioned, Marsha, <laughs> the experience of the Syrian novelist, Khalil Khalifa. Um, right. And the translation of his book in praise of hatred and Khalifa really was a victim of that translation wasn't he the, the English translation made substantial changes to his mind. right but I would just like to to make sure that it's understood that Larry Price the translator was not the one behind that decision and that Larry was also blindsided by that and that Khalid and Larry continued to work together on translation with other publishing houses and have a very sort of happy relationship with one another. But yes, the publisher decided at the last, well, at what what was expressed, was only expressed to the author and translator at the last moment to remove the final chapter, which changes the entire trajectory of the book. Um, How can that happen, do you think? I, I mean, I think changes are made in translation a lot. Um, um, Although generally speaking, uh, the ones that I know of that where books are changed a lot in translation, Rabia Madhun's um, Lady from Tel Aviv was cha is changed a lot in translation. But Elliot Kola, Rabia, and the publisher all worked together 
and made those decisions. Um, I think um, Abdulkhel's uh, throwing sparks has changed in translation. I believe that the translator, the author, the publisher all made those decisions together. Um, I, I think it is, but there are occasions when someone in the process or multiple someones are, are blindsided by this. In the case of Girls of Riyadh, um, it was Marilyn Booth, the translator, who, who found her, um, the publisher uh, got the author on their side and changed the translation to such an extent that she wrote a letter disavowing it. So, um, you know, uh, the publisher is the one who generally wields the most power in these situations. Um, although, of course, the translator can make terrible decisions and not not inform anybody of it um, as well. Yes, so there's a lot of kind of flexing of power throughout the whole industry, I suppose. I mean, a similar thing happened to Noel al-Sadawi's nonfiction, The Hidden Face of Eve, Women in the Arab World. The English translation excised two whole chapters one on women's woman's work at home, and one on Arab women and socialism. And it also rearranged the chapters. There was a whole section added about female genital mutilation. Um, and the edition most US readers read completely glossed over her views on capitalism and imperialism. It, they turned it mostly into a book about FGM. And that's a real violation, isn't it? To have your own words completely distorted, you know, to, to, to lose control of the argument you're making be, and then be presented kind of as a totem for a totally different cause just because it's more palatable or marketable or saleable. Right. Well, I think she did. She did believe in that. You know, uh, she was opposed to female genital mutilation. So I think she did. You know, she, I, I don't know that. I don't think she was. She was blindsided by this, um, but that she, you know, accepted this rearrangement of her work, which I don't think is to the benefit of her overall arguments. Um, and 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 the the book does continue to be like this. You know, they could have in time, you know, this book came out in the, in the 80s in translation. So they could have since then put back in the, uh, the criticism of capitalism, but it's, um, it's not. I, I think, you know, it's more, <laughs> it, it does still, it does still happen though. I mean, um, the Khalid's experience is not long in the past. Uh, publishers looking to make money and they have an idea about what sort of book is the best sort of book. Um, and Reem, do you, Reem, do you know of any Arab writers who've refused translations of their work because of fears that that might happen? Or is it something you worried about? I, from my experience, I have actually, my experience was really good. As I said, I have so far five novels translated and the sixth is on its way. So uh, I never had any problem with the translator or the publisher at all. In fact, uh, I don't, th I mean, I don't think that I, um, you know, I, I had to change anything substantially from the original Arabic text. There was a lot of respect for the Arabic text throughout. But however, I mean, I, my publishers were different from, you know, commercial uh, publishers, other commercial publishers. So I don't know whether in other, uh, but I can imagine that this could happen for other authors. And bear in mind that 
from you know from hearing from different uh, author friends there are authors who don't know any english and so mm-hmm. what happens at the end is that you get um, you know someone who decides on the translation and then someone who decides on the editing process and everything happens and the author is not even aware necessarily of what kind of the substantial changes because it's very different if you know the language and you're aware that okay we're changing one word we're changing one sentence or if if someone is telling you we're changing uh, you know this paragraph but the you know the change could be so substantial that it's almost different meaning altogether and i do know that there were um, studies made by some of my colleagues about how translations can change meaning and especially with issues that are um, you know like uh, as as uh, as lydia mentions with uh, capitalism or issues that may be sensitive to the west they they are taken out of books or they are dealt with with much more uh, tactfulness than the in the original arabic text this does happen a lot mm. I wanted to ask uh, Marsha about something which is sometimes a bit controversial. This is that you've you're in quite an influential position um, through Arablet. Arablet.org is for many writers a gateway to recognition. But the flip side of that is that it makes you into a bit of a gatekeeper. I wonder if being a gatekeeper for part of the Arabic literature community makes you uncomfortable in any way. Right. Well, I guess I guess the idea that I'm influential, I I, I think um, influential in an extremely small pond, perhaps. Um, I think you know you know um, the people at uh, Penguin Random, Simon Schuster, don't have any idea who I am or what I'm doing, and that the website does reach a fairly small um, audience, uh, all things considered. However, yes. It it can offer um, um, a route to publication in in translation to to authors uh, or or not offer a route to publication in translation for authors like any magazine. Um, and, it is a uh, it is a criticism that that has come up on social media. Um, I think I think I think the the criticism is that is that. Is that me as me in a position as a white woman? Is this the right position for me to be in? And I think that is a is a healthy and and good criticism, in that uh, the relationship between people in in North America and Europe and Arabic literature and African literatures and many other literatures has often historically been extractive, right? So the people in North America, Europe benefit from Arabic literature, African literatures, um, some Asian literatures, and don't bring, don't give anything back. Uh, so should, uh, should I be in this position or who am I to be in this position? Um, I don't have a PhD in Arabic literature. I'm, uh, I, and I'm not Arab. Um, so, so why am I there? And, you know, what am I doing? So I, I think this is, um, this is a reasonable um, criticism. I think you know this particular, uh, you know, discussion can spiral out of control on on social media in that it can become a sort of a referendum on am I personally a good person or not, and that's yeah. you know, sort of sort of beside the point. But yeah. the the issue of whether um, whether a particular publication is extractive or collaborative, I think, is very valid and. Arabic Arab Lit and my project 
hopefully, I try to keep it as radically open as possible. I try to publish things that are not to my personal taste, but are giving, you know, giving people a wider view, as wide a po as possible a view of what Arabic literature is. Because what, what comes in translation, as Reem points out, is a tiny minuscule percentage of what, what is out there uh, in uh, the Arabic literature that exists. Um, so I'm trying to sort of widen that lens um, uh, as, well, that as was, much as possible. Yeah, I mean, that was why I wanted to give you the chance to respond, because as you say, social media is not a great place to talk about these issues, and sometimes it's hard to make that critique in a kind of nuanced way as, as you mm. have. I, I wonder if you think that in some way it's a generational issue. Um, that was how the, the poet Hin Shufani explained it to me. She said that the criticism is coming predominantly from younger writers who look at, let's say, more established writers and say, well, they've benefited um, <laughs> from the imprimatur of the West, let's say. And so the criticism is really one of access, even though it sounds like identity politics. Right. Well, I think the criticism was coming from authors who have maybe wider, who have access. Um, but that aside, I think it is... Whether or not, however the criticism is meant, or wherever it comes from, I think it's important to ask, who are these people behind this magazine? Okay, it's a magazine called Arab Lit. Why is there a white woman running a magazine called Arab Lit? Um, and, and why is she doing it? And what benefit is she getting out of it? And, you know, like um, in Middle East studies, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, white uh, North Americans and Europeans writing about um, Arabs and sort of, um, you know, not allowing access. And so in what, what am I, who, what space am I taking up um, that could be someone else's, you know, some, some people I did see say, give, give me the website, let me have the position. Like, well, it, it's, it's not, it's not a position, you know, it's just, um, it's a WordPress website that anybody can open up. Well, I just wanted to actually make the point that all of us who write about, publish, invite on a podcast, edit, we're all gatekeepers in some way because we're choosing who to to write about or who to publish. Um, and, and like you, um, you, you said that you, you're trying to keep it all as open as you can and widen the lens. And that's exactly how we think of um, our publishing at New Lines, that we really are giving a platform to a lot of different voices, new voices and voices from different regions that don't normally get a platform. Um, and we work very hard at that. But even keeping it open, of course, we're gatekeepers, because as soon as we publish one person, we're not publishing other people. And there's just no way round that. You know, we're all ultimately shaping what gets into the public eye. And that is the job. Okay, so I wanted to just wrap up by asking what makes a successful translation, I suppose, which we've already covered isn't really possible. And that's a really great quote by your translator, um, Reem, to say it's never even finished. Um, but it is fraught with challenges and it does require so much compromise. But Reem, is there a way that you would decide if a translation of your work had been successful? I think so. I think if a translation is able to capture the cultural associations of the text and the, the human conflict in the text, I think that would be a, a very you know, an excellent translation. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the translation is also able to uh, you know, uh, produce a, a text that is much more accessible 
to an audience that does not speak the original language of the text. That is also a very important, uh, you know, giving access to someone who doesn't know the language to understand these issues and to sympathize with uh, these authors and to, sorry, to sympathize with the characters in this novel. I think that's a very important, um, you know, uh, thing in, in translations in general. So I think a translation should be able to capture the culture, the, the human conflict in a text, and to be able to render the characters accessible to a foreign uh, audience. I think these are all very important issues. And I personally think in my case, um, I'm, I'm happy that to say that, yes, this was the case. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but so far I was very lucky with my uh, translators. I think there are other translations that I read that did not do that very well. Uh, I, I had, uh, you know, because I, because of my work, I, I usually read uh, the Arabic and the translation to look at some linguistic aspects. And sometimes I could see that there are certain important cultural uh, concepts that have not been rendered in the um, uh, you know, English text, for example. So that is not always the case. So I, I think in that sense, I'm very lucky, but I can also see that the other authors uh, did not get the same chance. And sometimes classic authors, we're talking about, you know, I don't want to give names, but there are classic authors who did not get the same chance. Absolutely. And I agree with you. Your your translators have been excellent. Um, Marsha, do you have a way of assessing whether a translation has been successful? Well, so I think it's much easier to pinpoint failures in a translation. Um, but but absolutely, a translation, if it, you know, if the it you know of course it, it it depends naturally on the on the text the original text and the genre of the original text and and the and what the original text was attempting to do but a translation can be beautiful a translation can be musical a translation uh, can be can be an art form I think people who have read many translations by Yasmin Seal for instance Yasmin Zahdi um, can you can sometimes be be blown away. Much as like with a, for instance, a musical performance, you know, you, everybody has the same score by, by Mozart, but, but some people can really infuse that with genius. And, and when you're sitting there and hearing it, it's easier to then say, that was beautiful. And of course, if you're sitting there and listening to a bad performance, it's much easier to say, well, that, was, that, that B was flat and you're off tempo, etc. Um, it's, it's, I think it's harder to pinpoint what's really working about a text, but sometimes you read a translation and they've done just an absolutely gorgeous job with it. Well, thank you, Reem. Thank you, Marsha, for joining us. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. You can find Reem Basuni on Twitter at rbasuni. Her book, Sons of the People, the Mamluk Trilogy, is available to pre-order in English and will be released in April. If you'd rather not wait, you can, of course, buy it right now in the original Arabic. If you want to find out more about Arabic literature and translation, Marsha Lingsqueli's online magazine is arablit.org. If you'd like to hear more from Marsha, you can listen to her podcast, Boulard, on the Soul Podcast Network and follow her on Twitter at mlingsqueli. Her essay for New Lines, Who You're Reading When You're Reading Arab Women, is on our website, newlinesmag.com. Lydia is currently working on a new essay about the Coptic language and can be found at Twitter at LSM Wilson. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. 
You can subscribe to the New Lines Magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.